So we start a brand new sermon series, Hope Starts Today. And um, actually for the next few weeks, we're going to be using, um, I actually love Makedo's books. And so I've read just about all of them. And so um, he's always writing a new book. And usually the first month of the year, I usually take one of his books and it's great to be able to kind of preach and actually use this as, as a springboard. Um, and then we have some small groups. We use some of the study. And so he's written this wonderful book. And the title of this book is called Begin Again, Your Hope and Renewal Starts Today. And, and she actually wrote this book at the very beginning of COVID. So we wrote this about, about a year and a half ago, and I thought it would be a really good um, kind of an introduction to thinking about the brand new year. Because as we think about a brand new year and begin a brand new year, I, mean, I think there's no better starting place for us to think about than placing our hope and trust in Jesus Christ. Can I be amen on that? So I was doing my finishing touches on my sermon yesterday morning, like, you know, when I, I sit down on my little back porch and I sit there and I think about and I go through my sermon notes and I kind of make my little, you know, I write, um, have my notes up here, but I, I doodle on them and write all these little things. And so I started thinking about reflecting upon the idea of uh, we're all, you know, the ball started actually dropped down on, uh, you know, at the strike of midnight in New York. And some of y'all stayed up and maybe watched that and brought in the new year and, and so we all start the exact same place, right? And so we're all at the very beginning of the year. We all have the same starting place. And it started me reflecting upon, um, uh, the, you know, I've run the Boston Marathon like five times. And what's very interesting about running the Boston Marathon is that you meet a lot of really interesting people at the start line. And so it, usually how the, the, when you begin this uh, Boston Marathon, you, uh, when you're just striking up a conversation, because what happens is when you go to that, you, it, it, you, they put you in corrals. And so it, it's based on how fast you run. So the elite runners are like, they're at the very beginning. And, and then there's the rest of us. And we're all like, in the, like the cows in the back and the cow troughs. And so we're, we're back in the back and, and so what you know we strike a conversation and start talking to people and 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 the, what's interesting about that is you know everybody has a story how they got there and so what's very powerful is that we're all we're all starting the exact same place but everybody has a different story how they arrived at this particular spot in their life and so you know, usually what happens is, hey, you know, you have a conversation and say, where are you from? They tell you where you're from. I say, I'm from Florida. I'm from the villages. Oh, you're from the villages. And so, you know, you get that. And then, and then you know, well, how many times you run a marathon? Well, this is my fifth time. How many times you run? Oh, this is my first time. And, you know, we have this little chit chat. And you know what I've realized is it's very interesting. We have this conversation with these different people is that we all have the same hope, even though we're starting the exact same place, but we all have something, a common denominator. And the common denominator is, is that we all, well, we all hope that we can get to the finish line. And it's a long run. It's 26.2 miles. So we have the hope that we want to get to the finish line, but we also have the hope that we all finish strong. And so when I, I think that that's part of the theme that we find as I continue to read Lakeda's book is he really uh, is hoping that we all, well, God's hope for all of us is to get us home safely. And that's to be with him forever and ever and ever. And that each and every one of us, we all finish strong. So I was thinking about this this last, uh, this last, um, the last um, week or so. And, and so um, Locato in his book, this first five chapters, he, he talks about this idea of new beginnings. And it seems to be appropriate because this is the first Sunday of the year. And he uses um, the 23rd Psalm as kind of the segue into the beginning of this book. And so let me just read them a little bit. And then we'll talk about a little bit about the 23rd Psalm. And then he also uses in um, one, of the, one of the, I think one of the greatest stories that we have in the Bible, one of the greatest healing stories. Of, and it's a 
story that we find in the Gospel of Mark, the fifth chapter, where Jesus heals Jairus' daughter. So I'm going to teach on that in just a second. So hear these words um, from King David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leads me the right path for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, you comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen and amen. So um, I, I like watching this show. It's a little bit different, but um, it's actually, I think it's on the History Channel Discovery. And, and it's called, here's a picture of it. It's called Alone. And, and so what's very interesting about th- that particular show, it's, it's like a reality show. And by the way, they, what they do is basically they take 10 people and they take people who are um, really good at nature and then they put them out basically in the middle of nowhere. And there's big prize money if you actually win. If you're the last man standing, um, you win a million bucks. So there's a lot on the line. So they don't drop you out in just anywhere. Um, they drop you out like in the middle of Siberia in the winter, okay? And so you just basically, they give them the basic staples. Of course, there's producers and they check on them throughout the, the week, but to make sure that no one actually dies. But um, what's very interesting about that show is it's, you know, it's survival of the fittest. But what, as I've watched this show over the last few years, I thought it was really interesting because the ones that, you know, there's only one winner who was kind of, you know, die hard and, and the other nine have actually ended up tapping out. And the reason why, the, as I've watched this show over and over again, the reason why people tap out is because there's a sense of hopelessness. They just get, I mean, it's not so much the physical part. It's more about the mentally emotional part. It's a place in which they just feel completely alone. They feel so isolated. They feel such a sense of hopelessness and helplessness from that standpoint that they finally say, you know what? I, I can't do this anymore. So they call, they get on the, the, the GP or on the, on the radio and say, hey, listen, come get me. I can't do this anymore. And so what's very interesting, um, as I was reflecting upon the beginning of this book, is that um, Lakato takes that, um, the idea I thought was interesting about being alone, and he, and he comes up with kind of this fictitious story that begin the book, and I thought it was actually rather intriguing. So he says, just imagine yourself, this, this is me and you, just imagine ourselves, and so we, you get a phone call from your friends, and hey, listen, I got this great adventure for us, and we're, this, what are we going to do? And he says, well, um, we're going to we're gonna go to the Amazon, we're going to go to South America, and we're going to take a hike to the Amazon jungle. And uh, hey, don't worry, it's, uh, we got it all under control, we got a really great guide, and everything's going to be great. And you think, hey, I'm all in. And so then you end up going to, you fly down to South America, you go to the jungle, and you well, you meet your friends, there's a bunch of you together, and then you meet some other people from all over the world, and everybody's on the same adventure. You all start the same place. He says, by the way, when you get into about, I don't know, maybe a, a day or two in, all of a sudden, you realize that your shoelace is untied and you stop. Now, you have a friend, you made a new friend, he's from New Jersey, and so your friend New Jersey is left there, he's holding your bag, and he's got everything, all your supplies are in your bag. And so he says, hey, listen, I'll, I'll catch up with you, and he walks off with your bag, and the next thing you're untying your shoes, and you look up, and everybody's gone. So you begin to make your way forward and you start looking and calling out to people, but you can't find any of your friends. And you're really put out with your friend from New Jersey, who's now your ex-friend from New Jersey, because he has your bag. And you have no idea where you're at. And then listen, Lydia, you have no supplies, you have no water, you have no compass, you have no machete, you have no knife, and you are completely lost. You have no guide. Now what do you do? And so he, he gives us this kind of fictitious story to begin his book and 
he says, you know, here you are in the middle of the jungle and you're lost and you feel a sense of hopelessness. He says, what do you really need? Well, you need someone, most of all, is to, well, you need someone who knows, well, you need another person to, first of all, because you're in the most lost in the jungle, to be alone is really difficult. Not only do you need another person, but you need another person who, well, has a vision. Not only do you need a person who has a vision, but you need someone who has a vision who knows the way out. And so he compares that in a relationship with Jesus Christ, isn't it? I mean, we all, we, you know, place at different places in our life. We all understand what it feels like to maybe be in a jungle. And there's a sense of hopelessness. I guarantee you, everybody in this room can relate to that. We all have our own jungle. I mean, maybe, um, I mean, haven't we all in some sort of fashion um, for the last two years in the midst of COVID and all that, we have felt like we've been in a jungle. I, I, I guarantee you there have been people and, and either you have been or maybe you have a neighbor or a, a friend or a child or a, a brother or a sister or someone in your life has struggled with depression or anxiety in the midst of the last two years. And we all understand what it feels like to feel as if that you're in the jungle. Or maybe you, you, know, you went to the doctor's office one day and you got news that you weren't prepared for. And they say, well, you've, you know, we don't like what that looks like on the x-ray and it ends up being cancer. You weren't prepared for that. You, now, now you're facing your jungle. Or the idea of, um, oh, I don't know, you know, you know two years ago, um, I, you know, I'm, uh, Mar- in December of 2019, you know, I, I got run over and um, was in this horrific car accident and I... I understand what it feels like to be in a jungle, not just physically, but emotionally. I can remember literally um, after I had two operations and the first day after I'd had my second operation, I remember it took everything I had, everything that I had, every ounce of energy to walk from here to here. So I understand what it feels like to be in a place for the last two years to be in a jungle. You go back five years ago, and I understand like every day waking up when you have a child who struggles with depression and anxiety and is really in a really difficult place and you're living that as a parent. Oh my gosh. Wow. In a jungle. And so um, there is a place that we find and we think about this, that that Jesus, um, well, and we find it in, uh, actually in the 23rd Psalm where David talks about the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He restoreth my soul. What I love about that particular part of the text is that God is the one who restores our soul. We follow a shepherd who's in the restoring soul business in the midst of giving us hope. When we all, I mean, everybody in this room has felt a sense of being in the jungle. 
Uh, back in 1991, true story, my, my father and I had a chance to, I'd never been to the Holy Land, and so um, we finally worked it out that I could go with them, and I thought it would be great because it was the very beginning of my uh, ministry, and so it was a lifelong dream. So I went to the Holy Land with my father, and we were in Jerusalem, and so at the very beginning, we, we had a down day, and so in the, on the free day, my dad says, well, let's go to the old city, and so, um, so we were down there, and we looked like, obviously, we looked like tourists, and so one kid shows up to us and says, hey, mister, he says, I can be your guide for the day. Um, and I can take you all around the sites of Jerusalem and, and you'll go to places on there. You'll never be before. And so my dad being kind of adventurous, I didn't think it was a really good idea, but he took him up on the, he's a, and he said, he paid the kid 20 bucks. And, and so, um, so the kid started taking us all around. Little did we know that the kid had no clue where he was going. No clue. So he took us down in the middle of the heart of the old city, and he took us down to a, the where they're actually having. Um, uh, they had this big market, and in the midst of the market, we were. I literally remember being in this tunnel, and there was like literally being like in the middle of a stampede. It was one of the scariest moments of my life, and I have no idea how we got in it, but it was literally a stampede. And I remember I was on one side of the tunnel, my father's on the other side of the tunnel. We got separated, and I remember looking at my eye to contact with my father, and and I'm thinking, man, how are we going to get out of this alive or not? Literally just swept up in this. This, this current of people and it pushed us through and we literally could not move. I mean, we were being pushed through and we finally got to the other side. And let me tell you something, my dad was not happy with that kid. And by the way, he didn't get a tip either. So, you know, what's interesting when we're all facing our jungle, by the way, if you ever go to the Holy Land, I guarantee you, I'm not going to take you there. Okay. We're going to find a really good guide. And so what's very interesting is we all need, we need someone who, A, knows the way, who has got a vision, who can only ultimately get us out. We need someone who, well, we can place our hope in. You know, what's interesting is that um, um, we think about this, this, this story that, or this, the 23rd Psalm and, and you know, the idea that I, I love this, that, that the shepherd is the one who restores our hope and our soul. We have to be able to understand what it's interesting that Jesus himself faced his own jungle, his own challenges. Matter of fact, if, if you remember back in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, I guarantee you, you'll recognize this picture. It was in every United Methodist parlor in America. And there it is. You remember that picture of Jesus, right? The, the stoic Jesus, he's in the sto- garden and there he is. And he's got the halo there. And, and he, he seems to be somber. He seems to be, but yeah, and he's looking up to his heavenly father and he's praying, his hands are clasped. And, but you know, um, that's an interesting perspective on Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. What's, what's really actually very interesting is because Mark says, in the Gospel of Mark, he puts Jesus and he says, listen, um, Jesus has actually fell to the ground. Um, and then we also find in Matthew's version, not only does Jesus fall to the ground, but we also find that Jesus was in despair to the point of almost death. But Luke gives us his other interpretation, and Luke gives us more of this version. Let me show you the other picture, and this is, this is from the Passion of Christ, and this is a little different picture, isn't it? Because Luke gives us this detail of when he says that Jesus was in such anxiety and such pain and such anxiousness that he actually sweat drops of blood. Don't miss the detail. By the way, Luke, I love Luke because I share with you all during Christmas time that said Luke gives us the very beginning of his, when he begins the whole gospel. He says, by the way, there are other versions of this story about Jesus, but I want you to know mine's the right story. I love that. There are other ones out there, but I want you to know I've got this right. 
He makes it very clear. Luke wants us to know he's got the real scoop on the story of Jesus. And so we find this version of Luke's story, the detail that literally Jesus was in such anxiety and such torment that he was sweating drops of blood, which is actually a legitimate thing that can happen when you're under such pressure and anxiety. There's a chemical release in your body and it opens up pores within your system and you can literally sweat drops of blood. Wow. I mean, if you want to look at the, there's an emotion in the midst of Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, that is, I mean, you're talking about facing his fear. And what's very powerful about that is that um, Jesus, in the midst of that, he says, hey, listen, um, God, he says, if there's any other way, can you please let this cup pass from me? And then what's the next phrase that we find? Not my will, but thy will be done. And what's very interesting is that, G, that God does not take the cross from Jesus. But he does, he does release him from his fear. Uh, which is very, you know, because the Bible says, once again, don't miss the detail. Um, you know, what, what, God, what Jesus, when he's in the garden and he's praying and he is in the midst of this torment and hurt and pain, um, what's he pray for? You know what he prays for? Strength. Jesus prays for strength. Go back and look at the detail. And so God sends angels to be able to minister to him in order to give him strength. You know what I love about this story? And so I, I shared this the last, uh, last service and I came up with this idea um, the last 24 hours of thinking, reflecting. D- do you realize, and here's once again, here's the teaching moment. Let's just look at how Jesus dealt with his own pain and misery and his face in his own jungle, right? This is, you're talking about a jungle. By the way, God doesn't take away the jungle. The jungle's a jungle, but how we face the jungle is where Jesus and, his, and the Holy Spirit come through and gives us strength and gives us hope. Okay, so here's what, how Jesus, let's just look at Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Let's just look at how Jesus dealt with the situation. So he, he knows that he's going to be crucified tomorrow, and he says, Lord, if there's any other way, please let this cup pass from me. Not my will, but thy will be done. You know what's interesting? What's very powerful is that who does Jesus go to for help? He doesn't go to his mom. Mom, I, I need some help. I need, I need some support. Can you kind of help me get through this? He doesn't go, when he doesn't go to his siblings. He doesn't go to any of his brothers and sisters. Hey, listen, can you all rally behind me? I need some help here. No, he doesn't go there. He doesn't go to the disciples. He doesn't go to Pete, James, and John. No, no, no. Matter of fact, they're in the garden. And yet Jesus, hey, listen, I need for you all to pray. Go over there and pray. I'm going over here and praying, but I need for you to go over there and pray. Pray, pray, pray. You know what they do? They go to sleep. Some help they are. No, no, no. Don't miss the detail, okay? The first place that Jesus goes when he's facing the jungle, when he's facing something that's monumental, something that's, I mean, beyond our comprehension of something, pain, anxiety, he goes to God first. Oh, there's a thought. Okay, so Jesus goes to God first. Second thing is, okay, he opens up his heart to God. And the third thing he does is, do you realize this? That he, he pay, prays for something specific. Okay, Lord, if there's any other way, can you please take this cup from me? He doesn't pay for, pray for something in general. He prays for something very specific to his own situation. No, there's a model. Don't you think? 
that we all can follow? So listen, true story. So um, um, I was actually doing really good at this for um, several months, and then I kind of fell off the wagon. And my, the idea was actually the idea, and my wife reminded me last week when I went to her church and I heard the other Reverend Hendren preach. There you go. Got to hear her preach. We all went. And it was, it was great. And so she reminded me last week in her message about, you know, the idea of the first thing that I, I was doing was praying, but not just praying, but literally getting on my knees. The first thing. And so this morning, because my wife reminded me that I, I need to be more intentional about that. And I've done that in the last few days is before I even take my first step, is to roll out of bed and literally get on my knees and use the side of my bed as the altar. So see, the idea, and I tell you what, it's so refreshing. It's, it's powerful. You should try it. The first thing that we do is we go to our Heavenly Father, begin our day, open up our heart, and be very specific about what we're praying about. There's a thought. So when, can you imagine maybe the revival that we might have in our own lives, that revival we have in our church, the revival we have in the villages, the revival we have in our nation, if we all could just follow the basic principles that we see in Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. Go to God first, open up our heart, and be very specific about what we're praying about. So I did that this morning. And that's how I started my day. So wouldn't it be, and I challenged our last congregation and I, I challenged the, the choir that's no longer here, but, but they were here. And, and so I, I challenged all of us to think, wouldn't it be great if we all could just start our day with that? There's a thought. Okay, so Jesus, oh, it's very powerful about this. Jesus, um, God, when he prays this, he, he doesn't take the cross away but he does give him strength. And God, Jesus continues to find hope in the strength that God gave him to go all the way to the cross. Hmm. And, and this story, um, Lakato talks about this, and I mentioned just a few minutes ago that in the gospel, Mark, the fifth chapter, I believe, that, that uh, Jesus is confronted with this guy named Jairus. Jairus is a... Well, he's the leader of the synagogue. That's a, that's a really important detail. Well, we get that detail. Uh, leader of the synagogue. And so the leader of the synagogue is, means he's really a, a really important person. The leader of the synagogue, because the synagogue was the center of the community. Um, the center, the, I mean, it's where, where religion happened. It's where education happened. It's where community, ha community happenings would happen. And so he was like, the, the leader of the, the synagogue was like the mayor of the community. And so he's got power, he's got influence, he's got season tickets to the Jerusalem Jaguars games. I mean, do you get all that? This guy's got it all going, right? He's a big deal. My son Cameron the other day was really cute. It was fun to me. Uh, he decided he, he wanted this. He wanted a tattoo, so he researched it. And he knew exactly what kind of tattoo he wanted, and um, and so it was this intricate design. He actually went all the way to Gainesville. He researched which guy he wanted to do it, and so he spent all this time and energy and to be able to research it. And so um, I didn't know he was doing this, but his his mother might actually told me she says, "Harold, I want you to have a non-anxious moment because Cameron's going to come through the door in a few minutes. He's going to have a tattoo." Okay. So just go ahead and get a grip. <laughs> so he came in the door and he had this tattoo and it's actually like really beautiful. It's this p 
piece of artwork. It's amazing. And so I don't, after a couple of weeks, what I was noticing is that Cameron was, you know, sporting around her short sleeves. And so people would stop and say, hey, man, that is a really ca- cool tattoo. So about a week or so later, Cameron came to me and says, Dad, I just went, you know, I'm kind of a big deal now. I want you to know that. <laughs> Jairus was a big deal. So Jairus comes to Jesus and he's desperate. The guy who's the big deal is desperate. And the reason why he's desperate is because his daughter is dying. She's only 12. And what's very interesting, if you go back and look at the beginning of that story, and you know, you talk about hopelessness. Jairus, even though he's got all the power, influence, and the money, and prestige, and he's the leader of the community, he is desperate. He is desperate to save his daughter's life. So he goes to Jesus, and I think it's really interesting about the details of the story, because I I think it's very powerful in that Jairus comes to Jesus almost like a blind beggar, seeking, uh, hoping. Um, And I think that's part of the theme that we find here about actually seeing the light, about having belief in though that you can't see, and that's what we call faith. Okay, that's kind of the theme that we have in this particular story. So I think it's very interesting. Jairus, who has all the power influence, he doesn't barter with Jesus. Hey, Jesus, if you take care of me, I will take care of you. Nope, doesn't do that. He doesn't negotiate with Jesus. You know, I know that you're making some people a little nervous in Jerusalem. Hey, I know a guy. He doesn't say that. He doesn't make excuses. Hey, normally I'd be able to handle this, but you know, I'm a little bit over my head today. He doesn't make excuses. No, Jesus, Jairus comes to Jesus and he pleads for Jesus. You know what's interesting? Jairus is, he's blind to the future, but Jesus knows the future. I love that. He's blind to the future, but Jesus knows the future. He's desperate. I was talking to one of my friends recently, and he, um, one of his children was struggling with uh, depression, and um, he um, got in the car, and he went to go see him, and, um, because he was very concerned. And, um, and so he um, loved him and he was trying to help him um, deal with this very difficult state that his son was in. And he shared with me about an intimate moment that he had with his son. He says, son, I want you to understand something. You know, when you were, he was born, he was, had some pretty major physical uh, debilitations. And so he literally said to me, he says, you know what, Pastor Harold, when my son was we didn't know if my son was going to make it or not. I went down to the chapel and um, in the hospital. And I pleaded, pleaded with God. God, please spare his life. Please spare his life. He says, you know what, Pastor Harold? I went and I, I drove all the way up to see my son. And I reminded him about that moment about pleading for his life. And he just impressed upon his son how precious the gift of life really is. Wow. So Jairus understands the, the sanctity and the sacredness of life and that his 12-year-old, her life is being held in the balance. And, and so he, he goes with Jairus down the road to go to his daughter who's dying and all of a sudden someone comes and says, hey, listen, don't you know to bother the rabbi. He, you know, she's already dead. Yeah, it's no use. And you know what Jesus does? 
I love this line from Jesus. See, Jesus says, hey, listen, don't believe it. Jairus, don't you dare believe that. And then he says something very profound. I think it's one of the greatest one-liners in the whole Bible. Jairus, Jesus says to Jairus, hey, listen, don't be afraid, Jairus. Just believe. Did you get that? I love that. Harold, don't be afraid. Don't, don't, you don't have to be consumed about worrying about your children and about the church and about hell. And listen, hey, Harold, can you just believe? Don't you get it? Hey, Harold. Hey, Robert. Hey, Michael. Hey, Al. Hey, Chris. I mean, you just go around the room, right? I mean, the idea that we're all in some sense of a jungle and we all have to face some sense of despair in our lives and we're all seeking out hope because we're all starting the same place. But the hope that we have in Jesus Christ is he's gonna get us to the finish line and that we're gonna finish strong. There's the hope. Can I get an amen on that? We're all starting the same place, folks. But because of the grace of Jesus Christ, he's trying to get us all home. Okay, so... so Jesus has this conversation with Jairus. Hey, listen, don't you dare believe it. Don't believe it. Hey, Jairus, listen, do not be afraid. Fear not. Believe. Now you see the whole idea that that we find here in the gospel that it's about seeing and and yet believing and not and, and, and not falling into the trap. I love that. There's a quote in there that uh, Lakato talks about. Sometimes when it comes to faith, sometimes when, it, when they're in a relationship with Jesus Christ and the idea of faith, it, you, it's when you take and you put cotton in your ears and you don't believe about all what everybody else is telling you. Keep believing. Keep marching forward, right? Sometimes in our lives, we just keep, we just keep marching forward. So he finally gets there. Oh, I love this part of the story. So he finally get to the to Jairus's house. They keep marching. They don't believe. They're not going to believe a word they're saying. Hey, listen. So they get to the house, and you know what Jesus finds? You're not going to believe it. He finds a bunch of mourners. No, of course you would find mourners. That was part of the tradition back there. They actually even hired mourners. Now, there's this weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's this pandemonium and all this going on. And so... Jesus has the audacity to tell the mourners and say, she's not dead. She's only asleep. You know what they did? They laughed at him. They laughed at Jesus. You know what Jesus does? He throws them out. I love that about Jesus. (laughs) He literally throws them out. Okay, okay, all right, don't miss the detail because in the original Greek Okay, the original Greek, the, the, when you talk about Jesus thrown out, you know where else we find that in the story? We find in the, in the same word when Jesus throws out the money changers, the temple, throws them out. Same thing that happens in this story. Matter of fact, there are 38 different times that verb is used throughout the gospels when it comes to Jesus throwing things out. And guess what the other times are? When he throws out the demons. Jesus throws out all the naysayers the ones that laugh at him. Then he walks into the room and he takes Jairus with him. And I believe his mother's there. And he takes the girl by the hand and he heals her. And then he turns to Jairus and his mother, her mother, and says, give her something to eat. Wow. I told you it was one of the greatest stories in the Bible. 
it's one of those great stories in the Bible because it's about, it's the idea about not giving up and continue to cling to hope and keeping marching forward. Um, I, Don and I, over the Christmas holiday, we went to see a, a really good movie. I would highly recommend I don't usually recommend movies, but this was actually a very good movie. It was, um, it's called American Underdog, and it's a story about Kurt Warner. And Kurt Warner, I don't know anything about Kurt Warner, but he became a professional football player. But it's a story, it's a love story, but, and it's not just about him being extremely successful. It's about the journey that he took to become successful. I mean, this is a guy that no one ever believed Matter of fact, he was like third string quarterback at a know nothing, you know, like a, just a team out in the nowhere. And he ended up playing in arena football, which is not the NFL, okay? And they paid attention to him and he finally got his chance. And so the starting quarterback goes down and he ends up becoming this sort of quarterback. And what's very interesting, it's this, the story is about the journey that it took to get him to success. I mean, literally, um, he had met this um, young woman and she had two children. She was in the military and she was divorced and he was just right out of college or at the senior year of college. And she had one child that the father had actually was taking care of one night and dropped the child on its head. And he had limited, uh, dis he had disabilities. And so he took all that on. There's a place in which they didn't have two nickels to together. Had two, they were out in the middle of a snowstorm. There's a one scene, and they and they um, they scrapped up two dollars and thirty seven cents, and they had run out of gas in the middle. And he had to run back to the store about two or three miles back, and he had to borrow a gas tank, and promise the guy he would bring it back. And they had two dollars and like thirty seven cents. And they put the gas in the car, and then they got home, and they didn't have any heat in the house because they couldn't afford the electric bill. And out of all that, he ends up going and becoming the Super Bowl champion, the greatest NFL player of the whole year, and becomes in the Hall of Fame. The story is really, it's a love story. It's not just about success. It's the journey that he took to get there, and it's about not giving up and having hope. That's the part of the story. You know, the part of the story I think about this today is not only do, do, it's the idea of not giving up, right? We just keep marching forward in our own personal lives. But I love this part of the story because I love this about the Bible and the teachings of Jesus because I really believe that Jesus Christ never gives up on us. Can I amen on that? That, that there is, that we don't give up, but then this, this Jesus Christ on this relentless pursuit of us and not giving up on you and me. And, and you know, when you get to the very end of this, this 23rd Psalm, and I, I think it's very powerful when you kind of break it all down, but he, he talks about, you know, surely goodness and mercy shall follow you, follow you all the days of, of your life, and I will show all dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I love the idea that all the days of my life, it's, it's like the idea that, Jesus, that, that God is always moving. It's not like he's just sedentary. That, but God's always moving in my life. God is, a, is, is the one who is moving in my life, that God wants to move in my life, that if I allow him to move in my life, but God's always about, he's in pursuit of you and me every single day. I mean, where do we find that? I, I mean, you think about it. 
I, I preached about this on, on Christmas, uh, Christmas Eve. What does God do? And Adam and Eve story, God goes and finds Adam and Eve and says, Adam, where are you? Right? He goes and finds Moses at the burning bush. Moses, where are you? Right? He goes and finds David. David, where are you? You find the disciples in a, in a boat that was being swamped in the middle of a storm. And Jesus, God is always showing up. In the midst of that, he finds a woman at the well. He finds, oh man, after Peter's denied Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. Guess what? Jesus goes and finds Pete. It says, Pete, go get some of those fish. Bring them over here. Let's have breakfast and let's just talk. Peter, where are you? Do you really love me? That's what I love about Jesus. Is that Jesus is always moving. He's seeking us. Because you can't get away from his amazing grace. In the midst of his amazing grace, we have this wonderful opportunity to bask in the hope. And we are never hopeless. Even when we're in the midst of the jungle. As long as we have Jesus Christ. That's the theme of today's message. We always have hope in Jesus Christ. So why would Jesus, why would Jesus go through all that, that pain and misery and the, and in the sort of garden of Gethsemane, not my will, Lord, but thy will be done. Lord, if there's any way you can let this cup pass from me, not my will, thy, you know, we're, we're all starting at the same place. And what I, I find is that this that we're about to participate in is, you know, we all have different stories. We're all starting different places. I mean, we're all, we, we start at the same place, but we all have different stories. Okay, so here, here's an interesting thought. is that Jesus has given us his story. And his story, through our relationship with him, becomes part of our story. Don't miss the detail. Because through your personal relationship with Jesus Christ through his death and his resurrection, through the pain and misery that he understands, that everyone understands, that we're all in our same, we're all in a jungle, we're all in different jungles, but we're all, he doesn't change the jungle, but he gives us strength to get through the jungle. But here's the great thing. Because of the, this is the greatest story on ever, ever, ever. And the beauty of this story is that I can claim part of Jesus' story as being a part of my story. And his story is about salvation. His story is about hope. His story is about grace. His story is about mercy. His story is about goodness all the days of our lives. And you know what Jesus says to us? He says, Harold, keep walking, keep moving. Because I'm going to give you strength and I will be with you every step of the way forever. Amen. And amen.